The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Emma Dowling. We talked about her new book, The Care Crisis, what caused it and how can we end it. We chatted about the scale of the care crisis today, how social reproduction theory can help us to make sense of the crisis, and we also talked about how conservatives conceive of care and of how they believe practices of care should be undertaken. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who have lots of excellent titles that may be of interest to PTO listeners. A young revolutionary plants a bomb in a factory during the Algerian war. The bomb is timed to explode after work hours so no one will be hurt, but the authorities have been watching. The revolutionary is caught, the bomb is defused, and he's sentenced to death by guillotine. A routine event, perhaps, in a brutal conflict that ended the lives of more than a million Muslim Algerians. But what if the militant is a Pied Noir, a person of French origin born in Algeria while under French rule? In Tomorrow They Won't Dare Murderers, Joseph Andres explores what happens to a European who chooses the side of anti-colonialism. A lyrical, meditative and heart-stoppingly suspenseful novel, Tomorrow They Won't Dare Murderers, is out now from Verso Books. You can buy it directly from their website or get it as part of your Verso Book Club membership. And now to today's interview. Emma Dowling teaches sociology at the University of Vienna and has previously lived and worked in the UK. Her writing focuses on feminist political economy, emotions and work, financialization, and the politics of social change. The Care Crisis is her first book. Firstly, could you just say something on the origins of the book and why the topic of care was one that you felt you particularly wanted to address? Well, when I began working on the book, the motivation was really to make visible a growing care crisis that was affecting more and more people, especially after the global financial crisis. So the context in which the book or the project arises is really sort of austerity Britain and looking at the ways in which the cuts are affect different areas and also the ways in which financialization kind of comes in where austerity hits so those are the kinds of things I was interested in but also I was really struck by the ways in which a lot of the time there's a sort of call for people to be more caring and people to be more empathetic and we need a kind of society and I and I was sort of also suspicious of that and wanted to, to probe that that some more and and really point to a kind of disconnect actually with the the structural conditions for caring and this kind of call for for people to to be kinder kinder and nicer and then the other thing also is that I come from a sort of 
long-standing interest and, and work in sort of feminist issues and issues of social reproduction and unpaid work. And so it's that kind of theoretical lens that I was that I was working from. And I wanted really to sort of ask, okay, so what would it mean to really systematically look at the economy from the perspective of care? And also, how do we connect the dots up between sort of different parts of society where care is an issue? Because I think a lot of the time also the issues of care and the ways that they that actually care plays a role in people's lives are dealt with quite separately. And so I wanted to sort of join up the dots between them and maybe also in ways that people don't normally think about. And in terms of the post-financial crash era, obviously describing something as, as a crisis entails that there was some kind of preceding normality or, or, or pre-crisis period. Do you see then a very sort of sharp dividing line between the austerity era and, and the preceding years? Or do you think it's less neat than that? Well, I'd say, I mean, I say this also in the book that I sort of make the qualification that to say to diagnose a crisis is obviously to say that something is amiss and it's not as it was before or there's some kind of you know situation that's come to a head and, and, and requires attention. And of course, when we look at issues of, of care before the global financial crisis and before the sort of austerity measures, things weren't great either. And certainly there's been a sort of war of attrition on, on care for a long time and so it's not the case that uh, before everything was fine and then suddenly things were absolutely terrible it's more a case that I think on the one hand there are continuities between the ways in which throughout history we can see that there has been you know women's work care work is is undervalued is devalued is sort of kept invisible and, and relied on in so many ways that's one aspect the other aspect is that with the kind of neoliberal restructuring of society, there have been, you know, cuts and welfare state retrenchment, also changes to female labour market participation without an actual real change in the sexual division of labour. All these sorts of things have been ongoing. But actually what we see with the global financial crisis is really a sort of event where, again, there's a kind of more rapid restructuring taking place where I think things got a lot worse. And so I wanted to sort of take that as an as an event to to start from to look at what happened then after the global financial crisis and the ways in which austerity was on the one hand offloading the cost of the crisis to people who were picking up the tab by having to 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 do the work of caring but also the ways in which attempts were made to actually harness care for putting capital accumulation back on track and creating new markets for financial capital so that's really what I was interested in looking at. You've already mentioned social reproduction theory, and it's one of the key resources that you draw on for thinking about care in the book. So for anyone not particularly familiar with the term, could you explain what the key insights are of of social reproduction theory and and how you make use of it and, and how you develop those insights in the book? Yeah, well, social reproduction theory is certainly comes out of a sort of feminist theory and a tradition of, well, of understanding the ways in which women's unpaid work in the home is actually important in creating the conditions for any kind of value to be generated in a capitalist economy. So this begins particularly in the 70s and struggles there to sort of point and to understand and to point to the role 
of the housewife and mother, not only as a sort of idealized figure, but also as a, a worker, albeit an unpaid worker, who reproduces the labor power that is needed for a capitalist economy and does so through her work in the home, which is work that's not just care work, it's also uh, housework and cleaning and cooking, uh, etc. So it's a sort of whole bundle of labors that fall under this category of reproductive work. And so it's a kind of understanding how this work is is important in enabling a capitalist economy to function, but of course, any kind of life at all as well. So it has this kind of dual character. And I think that's, that's also a sort of point that I discuss in the book. So what matters to me really is then thinking, okay, on the one hand, you know, I'm not the only one who does this. There's a sort of feminist, you know, feminist debates going on for a long time. But what I wanted to do is to look at, okay, what are the sort of analytical factors that we take from this idea of the, the housewife and the, and the mother and her reproductive work? And how do we see today how there are some continuities with that in terms of women's unpaid work, but also how there seems to be a kind of structural feature of capitalism that relies in many ways on unpaid unpaid work and the sort of gendered and racialized ways that that happens. And in terms of the conclusions that are drawn from social reproduction and seeing that unpaid work, particularly in, in the home, is, is key to the accumulation of, of capital, do you think the implications are, are sort of necessarily radical in terms of needing to restructure the entire economy? And, uh, you know, I've spoken to Sophie Lewis before, who points out that really, if you were to start paying for housework, it would, you know, it would effectively destroy the economy. A capitalist economy can't function on that basis. So you would have to move towards some sort of more just post-capitalist system. Or do you think it's it's possible to take a position which simply sees the conclusion that we should acknowledge that work, show more respect to people engaged in those forms of care work, but not to go any further than that? I would absolutely argue, and I mean, this is certainly something that comes to the fore in discussions about what is to be done about what seems like a permanent and constant devaluation of this kind of work, and it's sort of rendered invisible and sort of handed down a, a chain of, of devaluation that is gendered, racialized, and, and so forth, that there are debates about, well, can can this system be sort of stabilized in, in such a way that there can be universal basic income or a, a certain labour market policies, public services that enable this work to be to be done in ways that free up women to participate more in the in the labour market, these sorts of things. But also the idea that well, this is the this is the idea that somehow it could be it could be stabilised. And I would argue that certainly things could be a lot better than they are at the moment for sure. But I think to really take seriously that this is a this is an area of our uh, of our lives that we need to attribute value to also means that we need to think quite fundamentally about how we produce, how we consume, how we live our lives. And, and I think that's also what is encapsulated in the sort of wages, wages for housework or wages against housework debate is to show by making the demand for wages for housework was to actually show that this is, that all of this work is a source of, of surplus and that it can't all be remunerated without things sort of falling apart. So I think to a certain extent, yes, that we do it does raise the point that we have to think about different different ways of organizing the economy and we we can't really fall fall short of that 
just in terms of the social reproduction theory in, in, in the abstract, is there any problem in the sense that by bringing areas that are not traditionally conceived of as being part of the economy into the sphere of, of value creation, so seeing the home as, as, as just as implicated in, in capital accumulation as, as a factory or, or another workplace, that you can end up going down the path of, of seeing the whole of society in its entirety as nothing but a, but a factory for the accumulation of capital. Since so You could argue, for instance, that recreation, just spending time with friends and family is, is a necessity for ensuring that the worker can return to work and be productive. So how do you think we can think about social reproduction in a way which doesn't just subsume everything under, under value creation? That's a really good question, because I think there is something there also about the ways in which those spaces and those parts of our lives are organized. And I think a lot of the time, and certainly at present, what we see is that more and more it is the the, the case that our free time or the the time where we reproduce our labor power is actually kind of subsumed under the imperative of uh, productivity and of making us you know we do things in ways that sort of replenish us so that we can go back to work or we might even organize our lives in such a way that we do things in in that time that help us to get along better you know to to get further in our in our jobs or we try to optimize ourselves in ways that that mean we can be better workers and produce more value. So I think there is a way in which certainly also the kind of imperative of of neoliberalism is to sort of orient all of life towards this idea of of, of being uh, being productive and and then it also gets kind of overlain with ideas about uh, actualizing oneself in the world and then that becomes kind of part of what it means to do the kind of work that is meaningful etc. I mean all of this kind of ideology. So yeah. So I think there is a way in which the way that, that social reproduction is organised is geared towards economic productivity and, and, and a sort of productivist notion. And I think partly also what we need to think about is how do we uh, reclaim <laughs> reclaim space and reclaim our lives and to care for ourselves and one another in, in different ways that are not geared towards that end. One of the things you do in the book is you try to distinguish between care and processes of social reproduction. To what extent is it possible to disentangle the two? That is a very good question, because I think a lot of the time, actually, the two terms do get used interchangeably precisely because social reproduction is a bit clunky, sort of people don't really know what that means. And uh, care is, of course, a term that everybody immediately recognises as having some sort of relevance to, to their lives and to their, you know, it's a sort of colloquial term that we, that, we all, that we all use. So I think there's a bit of a problem there in terms of differentiation. But there's also... Uh, a problem in the sense that I think what I say in the book is social reproduction is really a kind of functional category it's an, it's a it's a category that it's a term that with which we try to we want to talk about precisely this relationship of unpaid reproductive work to capitalism whereas care is much broader in the terms of it has a kind of ethical and qualitative dimension we associate with care and 
precisely not actually most of the time the very material work that is also hard work that might not always be nice and that can be more complex and, and complicated but that care is actually something that we immediately think of in terms of social ties affection being there for someone doing something with attention um, these are all sort of qualitative and ethical sort of dimensions uh, that we associate with care and so I think there there is a way in which actually care comes to the, these sort of qualities of care come to take over actually a lot of the time in our understandings of care and what I try to to do there is sort of un, unpack or unpick the ways in which care like what care might be and what it can be and also all of the ways in which care and the boundaries of care and what care means are constantly blown apart or separated from one another so that whether that is in terms of what actual care means in the context of paid care work or when it comes to technological developments what is considered actual care and the other thing is of course the ways in which so often the imperative to care more has a very sort of one-dimensional understanding of individual behavior and sort of the way that we relate to one another as opposed to also meaning the more kind of material structures and the conditions for care to to take place so that's kind of what what I'm trying to to grapple with in the book and so I sort of separate the the two out in in that way and on that point about the way in which we all sort of value care in, in, in various ways and the way in which we recognise the importance of care aside, even if it's part of our job, for instance, it's your view, am I right in thinking, that that is to a substantial extent the reason why a lot of care work is so poorly paid, that people are guilted into doing care work for relatively little remuneration because they do recognise that sort of intrinsic value to the work that they're doing. But I think there are different different issues at play there. So on the one hand, I would say it's not so much the case that care work is paid so little because people would do it anyway. I, I think it's more the case that actually in many instances, like in, in the context of this ongoing crisis, the missing resources for care are compensated by people doing overtime, still continuing to care under really difficult conditions, precisely because they can't not care or they, they feel a sense of responsibility or they they have a sense of, of compassion. So I think that that is certainly the case. The other issue is, of course, with care work that we, precisely because it has very little value, it also means that a lot of the times people with very little negotiating power within the labour market, that they are the ones who then take care jobs or who do care jobs precisely because of that you know, labour market vulnerability. So I think those are certainly two important issues. But the other thing I think is also about care work is that a lot of the time people think, well, that's just work that we do anyway because we're humans and or that, you know, we do anyway because we're women, that it doesn't actually entail any kind of skill or that it doesn't require any kind of training or qualification because it's sort of, you know, every woman's work. So I think that also plays a role. But certainly what one of the things that I that I stress in the book is very much this kind of exploitation or instrumentalization of people's compassion to kind of keep things going against the odds. And on that point you make about volunteering, stepping in, in the context of cuts and austerity, how did that actually play out in those early years of the coalition government? Well, it's a really interesting point because um, when I first started looking at 
at some of these issues and and certainly in the context of austerity what I was struck by was this sort of discourse of of the big society and for listeners will, listeners will remember this sort of ill-fated policy of the big society that we associate with David Cameron it didn't really go very far but it was this idea that civil society should be more active and that citizens should be empowered to participate more in their communities and in the context of also municipalities and on the one hand in the, in the first instance this sounds really great so the empowerment devolution all these good words and at the same time this was happening off the back of cuts to particularly cuts to local councils incredible cuts to to, to local councils which meant that services couldn't be provided or that there were lots of difficulties in in keeping those services going and not having the resources and staff etc and so then the big society sort of steps in as this idea of people kind of rolling up their sleeves and participating and and doing good and helping one another and at the same time that's what's happening is that resources are being cut and public funding is being is being cut so that was one thing that I was seeing and the other thing that I was also seeing is that there was a kind of whole new architecture being developed around impact investing and sort of philanthropic investing where there were ideas about how this kind of volunteering is not not just something that happens in the wake of austerity but also that this is this could be a kind of model for new kinds of public partnerships where there could be investment from philanthropic and other investors to sort of help the government to solve social problems and provide sort of resources for for projects and that this this is also sort of part of a kind of social innovation agenda where to a certain extent not exclusively but you know in part also volunteering and sort of community action and civic action could also play a role. So I became very interested in trying to understand better what was going on there and and the ways in which volunteering becomes something that is harnessed in in different ways to address a crisis, but also to offer new, new avenues for financial capital accumulation. In terms of how somebody like David Cameron presented himself, especially in, in the early years of his leadership of the Conservative Party and, and before he became Prime Minister, he very much attempted to portray himself as a compassionate Conservative, sought to distance himself from a more kind of explicitly red in tooth and, and claw Thatcherism. But in the introduction to the book, you quote from Margaret Thatcher's famous interview in, in Women's Own magazine in 1987, where she made the, the now notorious statement that there is no such thing as a society. And it's perhaps the sort of statement it seems as if Cameron was trying to separate himself from to some extent. But you then go on to quote what she said following on from that statement, where she remarked that there is a living tapestry of men and women and people. And the beauty of that tapestry and the quality of our lives will depend upon how much each of us is prepared to take responsibility for ourselves and how much each of us is prepared to turn around and help by our own efforts those who are unfortunate. Which seems to suggest, you know, a position not that far from the big society. And on the face of it, it's not altogether obvious why the living tapestry that Thatcher refers to couldn't be described using the, the word society. So what do you think is the distinction that she was trying to make here? And what do those comments tell us about how ideas around care are articulated by conservatives and perhaps neoliberal politicians and thinkers more generally? The 
quote is very is very interesting because I think, and as you you point out, is a it's notorious. Uh, there is no such thing as 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 society. Every everybody knows that quote, and we all associate with that the kind of individualistic, selfish kind of competitiveness of neoliberalism that we have come to criticize, and also that has had such a destructive effect. And yet, in that quote, Thatcher goes on to to talk about uh, people helping one another. And I think what I wanted to to sort of point out is that sort of part of a neoliberal ideology is is individualism, but actually, it's 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 not so much about the individual atomized as it is about the retrenchment of a sort of more broader social solidarity that is also institutionalized through public services and social infrastructures and so forth. So the very things that also with Thatcher are, were, began to be retrenched. So that's why I differentiate between individual responsibility and personal responsibility. And now, of course, for compassionate conservatism and for sort of conservative values, what's very very central there also is the family and and the role of the family also in in this but also charity and these sorts of ideas and here I think there is ways in which that kind of can sit quite well within ideas of private responsibility rather than a sort of general solidarity and a, a public infrastructure so it's this kind of private responsibility that can happen through the market also is within family arrangements but also you know the the community and charity organisations and so forth. So it's this sort of idea that people can privately decide to help one another within their kinship or other relations, but um, that this is not something that should be a kind of generalised responsibility that also should be based on wealth redistribution and something like a welfare state and public services. Do you think that that argument that Thatcher makes is in some ways actually quite appealing because it has this kind of organic quality to it. We care for each other in this natural way rather than it's not sort of mediated through the bureaucracy of the welfare state. And that perhaps is actually something that's quite attractive to people. And on the left, we need to sort of recognise that. But I mean, Thatcher was very strongly also putting forward conservative values and the kind of the family, charity organisations and, and, and so forth. Like uh, there isn't that much in, in that that I think would, would chime with a really progressive idea of, of solidarity that goes, goes beyond that. And so I think on the one hand, you could say, yeah, there is something there about appealing about people helping one another, but but I don't think that we want to mean by that 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 should be just people's personal decision or that we care for people because because we, we like them or because we're related to them or because we think that they're, you know, that we owe them something by way of, of, of charity. So I think, you know, all of these ways in which the kind of voluntary or kinship relations are, are sort of invoked in order to talk about people caring for one another are hugely problematic because of whom they potentially leave out, but also because of the ways in which responsibility is privatised. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of today's interview and of other PTO shows, then please consider becoming a supporter. You can get access to extended versions of PTO episodes from £3 a month. And if you're outside the UK, you can also now support the show in US dollars or euros. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Thanks for listening.